listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode 10, Benjamin Harrison vs. the World. And I believe Benjamin Harrison is among the most forgotten presidents. Uh, but what we'll discover today is just how many consequential things happened during his presidency. The development of the modern U.S. Navy, which was a springboard to the U.S. becoming a global power. Uh, he was the first conservationist chief executive. He's the first president to use uh, executive action to protect America's natural treasures. Uh, with the Forest Reserve Act. Six states were added to the Union, the most of any president in his one term. He tried to protect African-American voting rights uh, more than any other president from the end of Reconstruction to the 1940s. Hell, he even leads a national quarantine effort in 1892 to stop a pandemic that was ravaging Europe and Russia and Asia, and he's successful at stopping that outbreak. But there's also failings. He's a one-term president for a reason. He loses to the same guy he beat in his original 1888 election. And many will point to Harrison's inconsistent financial policies as they led to the greatest economic depression in U.S. history at the time, the Panic of 1893, which happens just months after he leaves office. He also wasn't the most pleasant individual to deal with in Washington. Many of his Republican supporters would abandon him in that re-election bid. There's massive labor unrest. We'll talk about the homestead strike and riots in the Pittsburgh area in 1892. Even the Wounded Knee Massacre at Pine Ridge happens on his watch. He's a forgotten president to many modern historians. And I'm not going to lie, uh, you know, he's up there with Millard Fillmore, Zach Taylor, as presidents I, I really didn't know much about. But we did the research for the last year or so, and as our guest Charles Hyde, the president and CEO of the Harrison Presidential Site in Indianapolis, tells us, you know, there's been approximately 500 million half a billion Americans to ever live. Only 44 of those became presidents. There's something special about these people, and there's something worth looking at. And Harrison, who's the only grandson of a president to become um, the commander-in-chief himself, um, his family's uh, land that he grew up on was in North Bend, Ohio, uh, in southwest Ohio, outside Cincinnati. He's just a kid, uh, a child, when his grandfather dies in the White House, William Henry Harrison. And we'll follow that story from a young boy on the Ohio River to his adulthood in Indianapolis, his rise to general in the Civil War. He's a senator from Indiana and ultimately our 23rd president. We're going to share him today with Indiana, who also claims Benjamin Harrison as their only president. And we'll travel to Indianapolis. We'll speak with uh, guests from Indy in Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Georgia, and New York, New Jersey to bring you episode 10 Benjamin Harrison vs. the World. The voice you're hearing in that recording is that of Benjamin Harrison. It's the oldest surviving recording of a U.S. president, recorded in 1889. The first recording of a president was actually of 
Rutherford B. Hayes from Delaware, Ohio, but that recording was lost, and that was over 130 years ago. In peace and prosperity, Benjamin Harrison. We hear this voice of Benjamin Harrison, our 23rd president. We start the show the same way we started our Rutherford B. Hayes episode, by talking to Zach Taylor, political scientist from Georgia Tech in Atlanta, Georgia, he wasn't even on the production schedule to be a part of this episode, but I was talking to him about what we were working on during our recording, I think on our Rutherford B. Hayes episode. Um, go back and listen to episode six, Rutherford B. Hayes versus the world. He started talking about how you know accomplished and misunderstood he thought Ben Harrison was. Uh, so much so that you know, with his just kind of natural uh, enthusiasm, we invited him back on. Zach is working on a book about these Gilded Age presidents. I can't wait to read it. His passion for you know political and economic history it's inspiring, and it was awesome to uh, to have him on this season. I think this will be the third time. But Zach breaks down why he finds Ben Harrison such a fascinating former president. First, you got the pedigree, right? He was son of a U.S. congressman, grandson of the ninth president, great grandson of a signatory to the Declaration of Independence. But he did it all on his own, right? He did not rely on his family pedigree. Uh, he was one of the most intelligent, well-educated presidents of the 1800s. Uh, he entered the Civil War, volunteered, and his regiment fought over 30 battles yeah. uh, throughout Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, and he got promoted up the ranks to Brigadier General. Uh, he w served in the Senate for a while. So by the time he gets into the White House, he proves one of the most competent administrators ever. He knew government and how to run government programs. He mastered every major aspect of domestic and foreign policy, and he even ran several departments by himself. While he was president, some of his cabinet either retired or incapacitated because of uh, health or age. So at one time or another, Harrison was running the Department of State, Treasury, Interior, Navy, and War. So on many major issues, for all intents and purposes, Harrison was the executive branch. He wasn't just the president. Uh, throw on that, he was supposedly an amazing public speaker. Uh, we don't know his day because we only have written records, right? And it was not a time of great, you know, of war and that, those sort of issues. So we don't this sort of grand speech as a blanket. But everyone, allies and critics, said that he was just this fantastic public speaker for his day. The flip side is, is that on a one-on-one -on -one basis, if you weren't a family member, an old friend, he was really obnoxious. He, he was smarter than almost everyone else in the room, and he knew it, and he had little patience for people who didn't share or respect his expertise. Clerks, I guess what we call secretaries, would tell visitors to the White House, uh, don't feel insulted by anything that Harrison may do or say. It's, it's only his way. Uh, infamous acrimony with the Republican Speaker of the House, Thomas Reed, and despite the fact that they worked together to get a lot of major legislation passed, they hated each other. Uh, and I don't think there are many people in Washington, D.C. who liked Harrison. So this is not a guy that you'd want to hang out with with a beer after, after work. Our second guest is Charles Hyde. Charles is the executive director and president of the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site uh, Harrison was born in, in North Bend, Ohio, like we said, uh, which is just about 15 miles west of Cincinnati along the Ohio River. You can go back and listen to our episode on uh, William Henry Harrison versus the World, episode five. Uh, but we talked with Charlie just about Benjamin Harrison growing up, 
and, and what was his relationship uh, with our fallen ninth president who died in the White House? Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a rarity in American political history to, to have a pair of presidents that are related to each other. Benjamin Harrison himself was born in Ohio, um, right near the Indiana state line um, in North Bend, Ohio. And he uh, was born on his grandfather's farm. So William Harrison, who ultimately was ninth president of the United States, um, his farm there in southern Ohio. Um, But Benjamin Harrison was only seven years old then when his grandfather was elected to the presidency and was still only seven years old when his grandfather died, becoming the first president to uh, die in office one month into his administration. I think most historians agree it wasn't just because he wasn't wearing a coat and it wasn't just because he'd given one of the longest of all inaugural speeches. When two people from Miami University get married, they call it a merger. Ben Harrison was kind of the original big-time merger. Like we said, he grew up outside of Cincinnati. His favorite teacher was a man named John Scott. He had a daughter named Caroline, Carrie Scott. When Mr. Scott moved on to teach at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, is about 40 miles north of Cincinnati. Harrison followed him. Miami's founded in 1809. It's the second oldest school in Ohio behind Ohio University. It's a great place. I've had some amazing times on that campus. Shout out to all my Miami folks who listen. Um, I even took a recent trip there as a member of the Board of Trustees on a retreat with the Ohio History Connection. And we spent time with the Miami Center, a uh, center for students at the college for members of the Miami tribe, uh, mostly in Oklahoma. It's really interesting work and research that's going on at that institution in Southwest Ohio, uh, a, gr- a great school. But at 16 years old in 1850, Benjamin Harrison enrolls at Miami. His classmates include Whitelaw Reed, who would go on to become his running mate in, the, in his reelection campaign of 1892. But we asked Charlie Hyde, president CEO of the Harrison presidential site, did he really transfer to Miami because of a girl? Miss Caroline Scott. So that's that's as the story goes. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to it. So we, we have correspondence and documentation that suggests that, that that certainly factored into it for him. So one of his favorite professors, um, John Scott, actually um, moved to, to, um, to serving um, school in that area. And along with him came his daughter, Carrie, who would later become Benjamin Harrison's wife, um, Caroline Scott. For Benjamin Harrison, it was probably a smart educational move, but then also um, with Miami of Ohio and I think a larger student body and wider number of subject areas for for Harrison to study, um, it was a good move academically. You know, it was extraordinary, or at least out of the ordinary in that day for men or women to attend college, and both Benjamin Harrison and Caroline Scott um, both attended college. So Caroline went to the Oxford Female Institute and so you can find today, just recently dedicated, a statue of Caroline Scott on campus. And you can also then find Harrison Hall at Miami of Ohio, tipping the hat to Benjamin Harrison and Miami of Ohio being his alma mater. Harrison reads law in Cincinnati. He's admitted to the Ohio bar at age 20. But it's here that he decides to leave the comfortable confines of the Queen City, where the Harrison name still carries a lot of weight. He leaves for the nearby growing metropolis of Indianapolis, Indiana. Harrison did not really rely on his family name. He struck out on his own with his new wife, Carrie. I've always commended that about him. But we asked Charlie, why did he move out to Indianapolis? So I, I think it was very much a strategic decision on his part. After being at Miami of Ohio, um, 
He read law in Cincinnati, was getting married to Carolyn Scott and trying to figure out where he could hope to build a life together with her. And so they considered staying in Cincinnati, um, thought about Indianapolis, thought about Chicago, and ultimately settled on Indianapolis because he felt like his prospects were best. He, he, he had asked a cousin about Indianapolis, and the, the advice back that he got was that, quote, most members of the bar are moral, and some of them are pious men, but none of, none of them very talented. I think you and your good lady would be pleased with the society here. So I think basically telling Harrison, you know, it's, it's a growing town and it has a need of good lawyers. So you've got some prospects of, of making a career here. Keeping in mind, you know, while Harrison had a, a notable name um, at that point in American civic life, um, he himself, you know, didn't really have much to go on. He hadn't inherited any family wealth. So he said at one point, the only thing he ever inherited was his name. It was a struggle for him in the early days um, here in Indianapolis. Harrison becomes the city attorney of Indianapolis and later elected reporter of the Indiana Supreme Court. And that's when the Civil War breaks out. Harrison was a very religious man, maybe our most religious president, really definitely up there. Uh, he nearly became a preacher instead of a lawyer. You wonder, uh, probably would never have become president had that been the case. But he's also a vocal proponent of the new Republican Party. He was staunchly anti-slavery, and the Republican Party was a quasi-religious calling of his. But when he realizes that the war is not going to be over in a matter of months, Benjamin Harrison finds himself signing up and getting dragged into the Civil War. Harrison had been elected as Supreme Court reporter here in Indianapolis. Um, he was getting more involved in local politics. So he was on the election committee for uh, Lincoln when Lincoln came to Indianapolis and campaigned. When the Civil War broke out, I think his initial, um, his initial perspective was this is going to be a fairly short conflict. It was to his surprise, as it was to many, that the South held out the way that it did. You know, for, for Harrison, I think there was a real point of pride um, and that family legacy. And so when Governor Oliver P. Morton um, called Harrison and one of his associates to his office um, to talk about Lincoln's most recent um, call, I think for 300,000 more troops, um, Harrison listened and paused and after a few minutes said, if I'm needed, I will go. And Morton said, no, not asking you to, to serve yourself. Um, I just really need help recruiting troops from Indiana. And Harrison said, well, I'm not going to ask others to serve without serving myself. And so um, that would actually become an important campaign um, consideration in 1888. But at that time, it was, I think, for Harrison, just a matter of principle. Benjamin Harrison trains his troops. He was not a popular leader at first. He was five foot six. I think he's our second shortest president. And his men derisively called him Little Ben. He drilled him and drilled him in 1862 and would ultimately become a general for his excellent command skills. And his men, once they found themselves you know, on the battlefield as the most well-prepared, most organized, uh, they grew to love him. He looked at his involvement in the Civil War as a religious cr crusade on behalf of the enslaved, on behalf of the United States. Harrison and his Indiana men were at the Battle of Nashville, a major Union victory. They were side-by-side side with Sherman at the very consequential in American history Battle of Atlanta and his march to the sea. We talked with Charlie about his Civil War service and how he became a general in the Union Army. And within a fairly short time, you know, rose in rank 
Um, and so, as you noted, um, by the end of the war, he had been breveted as a Brigadier General by Lincoln, and actually that commission was signed just some weeks before Lincoln's assassination. You know, from, from all accounts, Harrison earned that commission, um, that it wasn't just a paper commission. He was known to lead his troops from the front, and it was very notable in the battles leading up to the Battle of Atlanta, um, Battle of Rosaka, um, Peachtree Creek, just all these battles, just that slow slog through the South, and Harrison was known for leading his troops from the front. Harrison returns to Indianapolis and he grows his law practice, becomes a leading Republican in the state of Indiana. He narrowly loses a bid for governor there in 1876, but does become the senator from Indiana in 1880. He serves one term before the Indiana Democrats earn a majority, and he's voted out by the legislature. Harrison was not a favorite heading into the 1888 GOP convention in Chicago. But the party standard bearer, James Blaine, was trying to act like he didn't want the nomination. He's playing hard to get. Uh, He was the 1884 nominee, narrowly lost. Basically, he's throwing his support behind different marginal contenders, I think in an attempt to show that this person he was supporting didn't have the support to win the nomination. So that eventually the delegates will realize no one was as popular as Blaine, and he would get his second straight Republican nomination. But when Blaine throws some support behind Benjamin Harrison, Harrison suddenly does have the support to carry the nomination. Just like that, from fifth place on the first ballot, he becomes the nominee on the eighth. It's crazy how those old conventions used to work, but we asked Charlie Hyde from the Harrison presidential site about the 1888 Republican convention in the Windy City. You know, you can see politically where hands get misplayed. You know, from from most accounts, I think it was a very narrow loss for Blaine in um, the 1884 election. So in 1888, I think... You know, it was one of the conventions to uh, play it cool. And Blaine just said, I don't want the nomination. And so he, Blaine was, was first choice, I think, for many of the um, delegates. It's, it's difficult to say how much of a hand Harrison had and the way that it all played out. But it certainly, in retrospect, looks like Harrison had some very shrewd maneuverings to position himself as the second choice for many um, different delegates. And so when Blaine did not um, command the field, um, it opened the pathway for Harrison to, to secure the nomination. Certainly there was um, some excitement about the family legacy. So we, we think that we have a corner on instantaneous news today, but telegraphs gave you know, as much immediacy in many ways. I mean, short of you know, landing right in your pocket, right. we're pretty close to it. Um, as the telegraph lines did in that day. And telephone lines were operational too. They weren't ubiquitous, but you could call, you could um, you know, send telegrams. And so when that news came to Indianapolis of Harrison receiving the nomination, um, a paper described it as uh, that night Indianapolis roared because that news came across almost simultaneously in Indianapolis. And I think for, um, for this city especially, It was um, a very affirming moment. Our next guest is is one of my favorite columnists. She's really a a humorist. She's the youngest person to have a column in the Washington Post ever. That started in 2010. 
and she's a self-proclaimed Benjamin Harrison enthusiast. Alexandra P. Tri, still with the Washington Post, joined us by Zoom this summer to talk about her favorite president. She runs the Compost blog for the Washington Post, and Alexandra is the author of the new book from this summer, Nothing is Wrong and Here is Why, a series of satirical essays about the Trump years, and it is truly hilarious. Uh, if you're not following her on Twitter, at Petri Dishes, please stop listening. Go do it right now. I'll wait. Got it? Okay. We can, we can continue. Alexandra is also, when we interviewed her, wearing a self-designed Benjamin Harrison windbreaker. We'll get a picture of it up on the Instagram and the Facebook this week, but it's insanely nerdy and awesome. But we asked her, how the hell did she become a Benjamin Harrison enthusiast? Now you can hear the sound of it in the microphone. <laughs> I can hear the swoosh, uh, that, yeah. That wonderful plasticky swoosh. <laughs> no, well, part of it is uh, half of my family is Hoosiers my, on my mom's side. And Hoosiers are nothing if not proud of President Benjamin Harrison, number 23, the Jordan of presidents. Um, <laughs> and so my aunt's been involved in like the Benjamin Harrison presidential site, which is his house from which he famously gave all of these addresses during the 1888 campaign cycle. People would just go to his house and he would have to address like up to seven groups a day. Yeah. So, they all are very invested in preserving his memory. I think there's a Benjamin Harrison impersonator that you can access there. And I was, part of me was actually intrigued. And the other part of me was thinking, well, you know, everybody wants to be a Lincoln expert. Everyone wants to know about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. McCullough is beating down the door on John Adams. But nobody's really, I just felt like the competition would be less stiff if you wanted to be, to inform yourself about Benjamin Harrison. Plus he was one term. So that's like only four years of information to assimilate. Um, and so I thought this is within my range. I'm going to set myself up and with the goal of learning as much as I can about Benjamin Harrison. And then maybe I can someday be a talking head on a podcast, just such as this one. If you go back and listen to our fifth episode this season about Benjamin Harrison's grandpa, or episode William Henry Harrison vs. the World, you'll remember that Harrison had the most famous campaign song, Tippy Canoe and Tyler Too. Well, Alexandra reminds us that Benjamin Harrison had a campaign song too. It's not as catchy and certainly not as enthusiastic about his candidacy. The song was called He's All Right. What's the matter with Harrison? He's all right. Um, and, which, all right. <laughs> they couldn't figure out any more exciting pitch than that but it's sort of catchy it goes what's the matter with harrison he's, he's all, all right. right yeah <laughs> there can be no comparison he's all right i'm i'm off the tune but um it's kind of a tepid endorsement though i guess it's positive but is it yeah it, it, a tepid endorsement is a good way of putting it oh what's the matter with harrison he's all right there can be no comparison he's all right Ben's a man who breaks. I first heard Alexandra talking about Benjamin Harrison on the Washington Post's great podcast, Presidential. From 2016, they did an episode on every president. And if you're a fan of presidential history, I ask you to go listen to it. They're still doing some one-off episodes here and there. But the host, Lillian Cunningham, would always ask the female guests, what would it be like to go on a blind date with whatever president they were talking about? In the case of uh, little Ben Harrison, he was not known for being the most affable guy. In person, someone likened him to the, you know, it's like talking to a hitching post, they said, or they called him the iceberg. But he was an amazing public speaker. Alexander talks about that contrast, how he's great in crowds, but not so much in person. And somebody else said, well, if you speak to a crowd of 10,000, 
they'll love his oratorical skills. And actually one of his very first speaking experiences, everyone was there to see, I think, Caleb Smith, this other orator. And then Benjamin Harrison started speaking and the crowd who had dispersed started to come back and they leaned against trees. So he was a, he was captivating. He wasn't like the most eloquent of all time, but he had good, sharp, sharp, decisive sentences and he would gesticulate with his fists in a compelling manner. And he also apparently had the facility of giving like a different speech every day, which when you had the kind of campaign yeah. that he had was, you know, pretty skillful. No, he was, he, he did a good job of speaking in that way. But no, the, but the quote I was getting to was that he could win over a crowd of 10,000 people, but then if he spoke to them individually afterwards, they would each depart his enemy. Yeah, not the, a ball of warmth. This great public speaking ability would come in handy for Harrison as he runs for president in the summer and fall of 1888. Harrison, since he had a connection to Ohio in the presidency, of course, he ran, you guessed it, a front porch campaign. He'd give dozens and dozens of speeches, none the same as he'd previously given. Uh, you know, Charlie runs this presidential site, the Harrison site, at the house where all this went down in Indianapolis. He talks about, even though he really doesn't leave his house on Delaware Street, Harrison and the Republicans get his speeches out to everybody. So Harrison gave more than um, 80 speeches to over 300,000 people, um, starting from the front stoop. It's, it's a front porch campaign. He was known for giving extemporaneous speeches, and so in giving these 80 speeches. Um, what was really cool about it is that he was able to get them transcribed. So he gave them extemporaneously. He had them transcribed as he was um, reciting them. And then he could wire them out to the newspapers um, immediately after the, the speeches were given. So it allowed him um, um, a little bit more um, insurance and, and knowing that it was being reported correctly what he had actually said, rather than there being open for interpretation, you know, whether one word was used or another. He was very clear in his advocacy and support for African-American voting rights, you know, from the 1850s, had argued um, strongly against slavery. And there's actually a great speech um, that he gave, again, extemporaneously um, to a group of African-American men um, that called themselves the Harrison League. So 300 black men came to Harrison's uh, front porch and congratulated him on receiving the nomination for the presidency. And he went on to articulate these ideals of, of what he saw, um, you know, were their, their rights in full and that they needed to be met and went on to share some deeply personal perspective um, from when he was a boy in Southern Ohio and discovering a fugitive slave um, hiding in the woods. Right. And he kept his secret. His grandfather's hat is too big for his head, but Ben tries it on just the same. But it don't fit even a little bit on Benjamin Harrison's brain. Alexandra's the one who told us about that grandfather's hat song. Uh, she, I think she said it's a banger. Uh, that's an anti-Harrison song from the Grover Cleveland folks, his opponent, saying he couldn't fill his grandfather's big shoes. His hat was too big for little Ben's head. It was a popular tune among the Democrats. But as the election approaches, it's clear that we're going to have a close one. The incumbent Cleveland from New York is not overwhelmingly popular. You have to remember before he narrowly beat James Blaine four years earlier, 
The Republicans had won six straight elections dating back to Lincoln's first win in 1860, so it wouldn't be a shock if Harrison pulled off the upset of a sitting Democratic president. He would need Indiana and New York. Those are the swing states, and they also happen to be the home states of both candidates. Harrison would take Ohio and its 23 electoral votes. And we welcome back to the show Bruce Carlson, our friend and host of the excellent political history podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. A quick shout out to Abby from just outside Harrison's hometown of Indianapolis. She heard us on uh, Bruce's show, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, heard about Ohio v. The World and bought a shirt. She just Facebook messaged me, but she can email me too at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. For one of our shirts, $20 free shipping on those. And you should seriously go listen to that show. There's so many great episodes. Had a number of listeners thank me for turning them on to Bruce's show. Just pull up his website or any you know podcasting platform that you use. But his website has a search bar where you can just look up his hundreds of episodes, find something that you're interested to. So just go to myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Uh, myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Bruce takes us through the razor-close 1888 election between Benjamin Harrison and President Grover Cleveland. It is really an example of just kind of being out-politicked. The Republicans that year were just uh, unified and organized, and they had a couple candidates. You know, maybe it would be James Blaine, who had run in 84 but lost. Uh, Maybe a few others. Um, McKinley makes some noises, and I know you've talked about him on the Ohio president series, but they decide on uh, Benjamin Harrison, who is a senator from uh, Indiana. Uh, it's a state that they, they need, and it's very narrowly lost. Uh, Cleveland actually wins the popular vote, but he loses the very important states of uh, Indiana and New York, the very states that he had won in 1884 to win. So it's really kind of a swing back and on the other hand, the GOP is very organized this year. There's a lot of promises made, a lot of money raised. There's one other issue, uh, two other issues are probably important. One is that the Republicans smeared uh, President Cleveland as pro-British. Yeah. Um, and uh, found, uh, they get this letter from a uh, British minister who <laughs> who's in the United States and someone writes him a letter and said, well, all in all, you know, we'd, we'd probably... Uh, support Cleveland. And that is taken as to, to, to totally exaggerated, an errant comment not approved by uh, His Majesty's, you know, foreign ministry. An errant comment is taken into, oh, the, the British are supporting Grover Cleveland. Now, who would care these days, right? If uh, Boris Johnson supported somebody in America, you know, we like the British. We went over there and, and helped them in World War One, World War Two. But 1888, it's very different. There's a lot of anti-British sentiment in, uh, and a rivalry in the United States and a large Irish population in right, both yeah. those states. Very important in both Indiana and, and particularly in New York. Benjamin Harrison wins the presidency, takes the Electoral College 233 to 168. He only needed 201 to win back then. And he takes both swing states of Indiana and New York. That's 51 electoral votes. And that's the presidency right there. He loses the popular vote. By 100,000, he's only the third U.S. president to do it at the time. Only George W. Bush and Donald Trump have won the presidency despite losing the national popular vote since. Benjamin Harrison has inaugurated our 23rd president on March 4, 1889. Like we said, he's a deeply religious man, spoke of the importance of religion 
and education and the massive growth of the country, which now boasted over 62 million Americans. And the Harrisons moved into a house that was falling apart. Although the Congress would not approve Caroline Harrison's plans for a massive upgrade to the executive mansion, there would be some improvements to the White House, according to Alexandra. But, but also they had a serious rat problem. And so Caroline Harrison wrote a letter. She said, well, we had to get a man in with a ferret to deal with this. Uh, they had some serious issues as, as far as livability was concerned. And they ultimately did get $35,000 from Congress to revamp it, make it slightly more livable and electrify it. Although the Harrisons were terrified to touch the light switches. And so <laughs> the guy who installed it would turn them on at night when he was leaving and then he turned them off in the morning. And <laughs> he said everyone had a lot of questions and was fascinated by it, even though they were scared of it. Harrison was a president in the middle of the Gilded Age, a period of great wealth and great poverty, many likened to our current era of economic disparity. In that inaugural speech, he called out the bad actors among corporate America for their greed and promised a way to rein them in. He promised new statehood to the Western territories to pay for the promised pensions for Civil War vets. One of the most important platforms, a comprehensive national tariff system to help promote American goods and American industry. And every single thing I just discussed, he would get those done, from the Silver Purchase Act to the McKinley Tariff of 1890 that we discussed in our first episode of this season, um, William McKinley versus the world, to the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is still used today uh, to regulate businesses and, and their practices and monopolies. This Republican Congress, led by Speaker of the House Thomas Reed, the Republican from Maine, would become known as the Billion Dollar Congress. So they became the first Congress to pass a billion dollar budget. Now 30% of that would end up being this Civil War pension plan I discussed. Um, but we talked to Charlie Hyde, the president and CEO of the Harrison presidential site, about the billion-dollar Congress. The speaker at the time said, was criticized about it being a billion-dollar budget, and his response, well, this is a billion-dollar country. And it was a good retort. Um, but I think Harrison felt the same way. If the country had the means to serve its citizens well, then it should do so, and it should meet the obligations that it had set forth, looking at protection for industry, um, he was also a strong advocate for trade agreements with reciprocal trade agreements with, especially with countries in Central and South America. Looking at that Congress and the, the billion dollar component of it, they, they probably overspent, um, but it was a good investment um, looking at the obligation the country had made to veterans from the Civil War. And so that was a priority for Harrison um, as I understand it, that that ate up a lot of uh, the budget. And I've seen at least one historian that traces back uh, the history of Social Security um, to that impulse um, and that desire to to ensure that we well that we we met our obligations to to those Civil War soldiers and all that they had sacrificed, especially for widows and orphans, and then for those um, those soldiers that were disabled um, through their service. One of the most important bills, in Harrison's opinion, that needed passed was the Federal Elections Bill. The South had prevented the massive majority of black men from voting by the late 1880s. This bill would allow the federal government, and more importantly, federal judges, to oversee and make rulings on federal elections. It seems like a pretty reasonable request. It was known as the Lodge Bill, authored by Congressman Henry Cabot Lodge, who'd go on to be Teddy Roosevelt's best friend. It passed the House and it moved to the Senate, but there it stalled. Harrison pushed and he prodded. He had senators over the White House for dinner and leaned on him. 
Alexander will tell us about his 1891 address to Congress to pass this elections bill. But the billion-dollar Senate ends up horse trading on this bill. It happened so many times during these years. But they passed the Silver Purchase Act to appease Western senators to not vote for the Lodge Bill, which Southerners rebrand as the Force Bill. Despite Harrison's best efforts, the bill dies, and the last best chance for political equality for African Americans would die until the 1940s. Alexander tells us about one of Harrison's greatest regrets as president, the failure to pass the federal elections bill. Yeah, no, he, he did it actually relatively consistently too. like one of his earliest political stances um, is that he said, as long as God allows the vital current to flow through my veins, I will never, never by word or thought, by mind or will aid in admitting to one root of free territory, the everlasting curse of human bondage. So he was always strongly anti-slavery. The Republican Party appealed to him for that reason. Voting rights in the South had been vitiated by a bunch of, there'd been a bunch of bad sort of court decisions. There'd been a bunch of, I mean, just like sort of terrorism by the Klan and others on the ground, making it really difficult to exercise the franchise. And so he actually did try. And one of the things that the detractors of the bill said was that it was going to send in, you know, going to have troops in the South again. But that wasn't, I think it was actually going to be like a federal courts were going to have jurisdiction and it wasn't so much that they were like sending troops in, but it was an effort because I mean, part of it was the Republican party would have been assisted by having votes um, from black voters in the right. South. But Definitely. another part of it is just like the whole country was not living up to its promise. And so, yeah, Harrison gave a powerful speech. He said in his message to Congress, when and under what conditions is the black man to have a free ballot? When is he in fact to have, those full civil rights, which have so long been his in law. When is that equality of influence, which our form of government was intended to secure to the electors to be restored? This generation should courageously face these grave questions and not leave them as a heritage of woe to the next. All the opponents were saying, well, this is a forced bill. They're gonna send the troops in. And he was very, I mean, they ultimately wound up in sort of classic congressional fashion, sort of compromising on things Cause like in the west people all wanted the silver purchase they wanted various other things to come through and so they didn't get the support that they needed because it got through the house by a narrow margin and then the senate just wouldn't take it up and so harrison complained he said it will not do for the people of any section to say that they must be let alone that it is a local question to be settled by the states whether we shall have honest elections or not which yeah. is a pretty resonant quote harrison did focus on the west uh during his presidency which made him popular there in his early years. But he did fail in the arena of American-Indian relations. The terrible massacre at Wounded Knee happened during his presidency. When on December 29, 1890, 300 Lakota Sioux casualties, including the believed-to-be accidental killing of Sitting Bull, um, it occurred there that terrible day. The soldiers came to arrest Sitting Bull on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, South Dakota. Shots were fired, and soon a massacre was on. Some believed as many as 200 women and children were murdered, as many as 300 in total. It's one of the darkest days in U.S. military history. This massacre all but ended the major conflicts with the Plains Indians. Harrison would send the army to investigate, but he would accept their version of events. Despite cleaning house at the Indian Affairs Department, Harrison was complicit in the wounded knee cover-up. The wars with the Plains Indians that had carried on for decades were largely over.
But some things Harrison took part in in the West were beneficial for the country. The passing of an act in 1891 allowed for the president to set aside a reserve, public lands. Harrison acted on it. He set aside millions of acres of land that we consider today some of our country's best national treasures. Benjamin Harrison was the first conservationist president. We don't discuss here, but he's also the first president who made an effort to protect the species of animal. The fur seal in the Alaskan Territory in the Bering Sea uh, was nearly made extinct by British and Canadian overfishing. Harrison in the U.S. stepped in to protect that fur seal and eventually won their protection. So foreign idea protecting animals that face possible extinction. And again, Harrison was an environmental pioneer in this area. We talked to Alexandra Petri and Charlie Hyde about Harrison, the conservationist. Oh, yeah, he loved the outdoors. Under his administration, they passed the Forest Reserve Act, which gave him the power to establish a forest reserve. And he used the act 17 times. So that's like a lot of forest set aside. He's responsible for opening our second, third, and fourth national parks. A lot of the forest reserves that he created ultimately became our national forest. They were renamed that. But if you see a national forest and you think it's great that we have that area protected, probably you have to thank Benjamin Harrison. So as senator from Indiana, um, he had tried on two occasions to get the Grand Canyon protected. was unsuccessful in doing so. So as president, I think he found a way to give himself the legal powers as president uh, to protect natural resources nationally. Now, 22 other presidents had had the opportunity to do something comparable. They didn't set forth to do this. But with the Forest Reserve Act, um, Harrison was able to secure the privilege for the president to protect natural resources nationally. And he understood exactly what he was doing because as soon as he was able to secure that power, um, he set aside 13 million acres of land uh, for protection, including the Grand Canyon. So Yosemite, Sequoia, and General Grant, I think Grant and Sequoia were later combined. You know, so much credit is given to Roosevelt for his exertions on, on the part of conservation. Mm-hmm. But what's, what's really fascinating, and at some point, Alex, somebody's going to have to write this book, looking at how much Roosevelt must have pulled his um, agenda as president from that Harrison legacy. The U.S. military had a huge drawdown of forces following the Civil War. Makes sense. There's a, from a few million to like 40,000 active Army, Navy, and Marines. We're really only fighting in the West with the occasional Native American conflict. The Navy is using ships from the 1860s despite huge advancements in modern warships. Harrison reverses this when it comes to the Navy. It's his policy, his visions that put the United States on the map as a world power. They lead to our destruction of Spain and the Spanish-American War. And they help set a modern Navy that can project power all across the globe. We talked to Bruce Carlson about the role of Benjamin Harrison as the father of the modern U.S. Navy. If you were writing a history of the U.S. Navy, I don't see how you could uh, ignore Benjamin Harrison. You know, in general, Benjamin Harrison does get uh, ignored a lot, doesn't he? But after the war, the U.S. really does go to a period described by some as the doldrums in terms of the Navy. It's very expensive to maintain a Navy. The Civil War was financed with debt. They can't continue that in the 1870s. And so um, the Navy really goes into disrepair. How can we really be a nation like this without a fleet that can service the whole country, that can communicate and unite the whole country? And um, there's a lot of propaganda around it. There's a lot of books 
um, by Mahan, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1660 to 1783. The obvious point, no Navy, no power. Progress on a Navy starts with Chester Arthur, and um, it's just seen in the 1880s that we have to do this. He's going to see that Congress funds and commissions several cruisers, the Philadelphia, the San Francisco, the Baltimore, the Charleston, the Columbia, the Minneapolis. These um, steel vessels can survive out at sea without docking for 103 days. This means that you as a nation have the ability to project power. The key statistic for Harrison's presidency, the path that he sets, is that we go from having the 12th largest Navy to being in competition for the second by the time you get to the turn of the century, where we're you know, in competition for number two after Britain. That modern Navy was put to an immediate test in 1891. The U.S. and Harrison nearly go to war with the country of Chile. I'd never heard this story. Chile was a power in the region. They'd gone through a civil war in the United States backed the existing president's regime, but his side lost the war. Chileans were not happy with the United States, and Harrison had brought the very popular James G. Blaine into his cabinet as the Secretary of State, but Blaine was useless to Harrison. He's constantly sick. He's never in Washington, always resting and recovering in the Northeast. He finally would resign the summer before the election, 1892. But Harrison had to handle this foreign policy crisis largely alone. Bruce Carlson takes us through what is now known as the Baltimore Affair, but it's largely a bar fight, an ensuing mini-riot against U.S. uh, sailors that nearly becomes a full-blown shooting war. Almost went to war, and it is interesting to think about at the time that Chile is actually a formidable potential foe and rival at that time. Chile, in terms of South American nations, was doing quite well. They had a formidable navy, maybe 10 ships, but very well built ships. Into this comes the Baltimore, which is sent, uh, you know, again, you know, preserving our interests. And like any good diplomatic tale, it must begin in a bar. True Blue Saloon. That's right. There's some kind of altercation and argument. And one sailor, a Charles Riggins, is stabbed and shot. At the same time, when this happens, the port police and a mob of Chileans go all around the city looking for any American sailors they can find. Another sailor is killed, and several of them are locked in jail, and there's reports that they are beaten and bayoneted. What would happen now if this were Americans? I mean, I don't think they're going to apologize fast enough, but that's the difference between having a military might and being where approximately where the, the U.S. was in the in the in the 19th century, we're still kind of a rival in some ways with with Chile. But that's something that's going to change during the Harrison administration. So this all happens in September 1891. It is reported back to Washington. You know, Harrison is initially cautious. He doesn't want, he thinks, okay, we'll get an apology here. And the foreign minister of Chile, Amani Mata, replies with, uh, it's because you made threats that are unacceptable and you have the incident wrong and, 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 and a very hostile message is given to them. Harrison still waits. He says, maybe we'll get an apology and nothing's forthcoming. And you get to January 1892. Benjamin Harrison in his December State of the Union address to the American people and to Congress is saying, you know, if we don't get satisfaction, we're going to take 
such action as is necessary. Does he mean war? That's not quite what he says, but it's a pretty strong statement. It's also a statement that, you know, we're not forgetting here. Then the foreign minister of Chile, Mata, goes to the Chilean Senate and says that the president's message is either erroneous or deliberately incorrect. And, you know, the translation in diplomatic languages, you just called the president of the United States either a liar or stupid. In the middle of this, there's an, there's an, an incident where Blaine collapses. He's really of no use. You get to January 25th, 1892, and Harrison delivers a special message to Congress on this topic. We must protect those who in foreign ports display the flag and protect our colors. At the same time, he's got uh, his Secretary of the Navy, Benjamin Tracy, supporter of a very active Navy, puts the Pacific Fleet on notice. They might have to get ready for something here. What happens is the very next day after Harrison's statement, you have Chile capitulates. They not only say we're sorry, but they say, you know, it's bending over backwards diplomatically. We could have your Supreme Court decide the fee. I believe the fee decided on was 75 thousand dollars in reparations for what happened. But Benjamin Harrison had taken a stand. And I think it's a foreign policy victory that if it were today and something like that happened, you know, that would be a very big deal in a presidency. Theodore Roosevelt loves it. He uh, thinks that this statement is forceful statement from Harrison is important. And it could only happen. President can only make a statement like that because we had a Navy to back it up. Labor unrest was not unique in the Gilded Age to the Harrison administration, but the homestead strike and subsequent violence is unique. An organized strike at the Carnegie Steel plant outside Pittsburgh and Homestead PA erupts into like a Civil War-style battle. Guns, cannons as the strikers battle the Pinkerton agents, uh, the Pennsylvania state militias called in, people on both sides are killed. We talk again with political scientist Zach Taylor from Georgia Tech about the homestead strike and Harrison's weak and really corporate-friendly response. So this is a period, again, when industry is getting bigger and bigger. You've got the robber barons, the really wealthy bankers and steel producers and railroad owners. And so all these people are getting really, really wealthy. And the American workforce has no protections. There's no unemployment insurance. There's no health care, right? There's, there's no protections for them. There's no health or safety protections. So they're getting really crushed. Wages are flat or going down. They're getting fired. There's not much of a, a, a union force. So as they're getting crunched and these new taxes are coming on that, that are passed through Harrison's tariffs, they're really getting hit. Prices for food are going up, housing, transportation. So they start going on strike and they start organizing in massive numbers. On an annual basis, hundreds of thousands of workers are going on thousands of strikes. And it really explodes in summer 1892 when there's a lockout at the Carnegie Steel plant in Homestead, Pennsylvania, that turns into a massacre. Uh, striking members of this union and hundreds of uh, Pinkerton security agents battle it out with rifles and small cannon in the street. One of the anarchists, the strikers, tries to assassinate a Carnegie official in his office. Yeah. And it's just nothing had been seen like this in the United States. And people were worried it was going to turn into this giant labor insurrection. Meanwhile, Harrison's on vacation in upstate New York. He doesn't do anything. 
previous presidents had called out federal troops to protect private, uh, protect federal property, to quell violence, to guarantee delivery of the mails. Harrison does nothing other than add a few lines to a speech. And I think he made a private communication to Carnegie to pressure him to negotiate. But other than that, he did nothing. Uh, instead, he basically left it to the states to handle it. They called in the state militia, uh, made arrests. There were all sorts of battles, and it was just sort of a big mess. And the next year, rather than try to address worker grievances, Harrison then begins to apply the Antitrust Act that he had just helped pass against strikers in New Orleans and Georgia, rather than against corporations that are sort of becoming these abusive monopolies. Harrison, though, did come through on his inaugural promise to achieve statehood for the territories out west. His administration admits more states in four years than any presidency in U.S. history. We talked to Bruce Carlson about why six states are admitted by Harrison and the Republicans in such a short time. The Republicans really didn't like that they were in a situation where the Democrats had a lock on the South. Because that means all you had to do was be like a Grover Cleveland and win Indiana, New York, couple couple northern states, and you've got the keys to the kingdom. So they created a lot of new states during that time. And that could be a factor as well why some Republicans could, say, afford politically to not be so supportive of let's fix the South because they were getting new states in the West. Yeah, I think there's six states actually that are, that are created yeah. during Harrison. So that's a... It's probably a, a record that uh, I would think most certainly. of any most of any president. Yeah, six states: Idaho, uh, Wyoming, Washington, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, and uh, which one did I miss? Montana, maybe. Montana, Montana, and Montana. So, um, yeah, these are all the. Um, you know, you can make a case that there was they were being settled at a much greater rate that the railroad is bringing people there. Dakota particularly, South Dakota really does have a good case uh, that, that it, it should have well been made a state. The rest of it, I think, has a lot to do with making senators. NASA records this episode. Nearly uh, 190,000 Americans have died to the coronavirus pandemic. It's numbers we haven't seen in over 100 years. I mean, I guess you can count the AIDS epidemic, but even those numbers, those very high death totals, are spread out over a couple decades. Our guest Bruce Carlson just released a new episode about Benjamin Harrison and the cholera pandemic of 1892. Again, my history can beat up your politics. Any podcast platform or just go to the website uh, and look that one up after you finish this election. It's a great story. Bruce is a great storyteller. Um, but Harrison is you know, at his new VP nominee, Whitelaw Reed's place in New York, when he learns of a ship coming from the infected city of Hamburg, Germany. It's coming to the New York Harbor with many cholera-infected passengers. It kind of reminds me of the cruise ships that we saw that were kept offshore at the start of the COVID pandemic. But India, Asia, Russia, parts of Eastern Europe, they're overrun by cholera. And there's a lot of deaths, hundreds of thousands of deaths. Harrison jumps into action and he institutes a national quarantine plan as the disease had really yet to, to jump across the Atlantic. You're not able to fly back then, so it's a little easier to keep it out from, from Asia or wherever. It's a case study on the effect of a strong, possibly unconstitutional executive action and its ability to blunt the effects of a disease on the American populace. We talked to Zach Taylor about the almost cholera pandemic of 1892. Yeah, so Pete, most people haven't heard of the cholera epidemic of 1892 because it didn't happen, because Harrison shut it down. Uh, and this is really one of his shining moments. It's his last year in office, just before the election. 
Uh, and it's really hurting. His wife had contracted uh, tuberculosis and he was devoted to her. So he's really wiped out physically and emotionally. And this pandemic is on its way. Hundreds of passengers on a uh, ship of migrants from Russia had contracted cholera uh, in Germany and were bringing it to the United States. And it had taken out several major cities in uh, Europe. And if this hit New York, remember at the time, New York was the financial center, the commercial center, the transportation hub of the nation. So it could have been a major disaster. Instead, Harrison, who is sort of recovering on vacation, jumps on a train, gets back to DC. He endorses a three-week federal quarantine on immigration, despite the fact that it's not clear he has any constitutional authority to do so. So he keeps these ships out in the water, uh, he then works quickly with Congress to pass legislation to create a national system of quarantines to keep this disease out. And it's fairly successful. Uh, and there's a great book by uh, Mark, uh, Marco Howard called Quarantine, uh, published back in 97. If you want to read more about this, it's really a, an example of great presidential uh, leadership. And Harrison gets a lot of credit. In 1892 was the 2020 of Benjamin Harrison's life. The Homestead Riots, the color epidemic, flagging poll numbers, an economy that's showing dangerous signs of a recession, a political nomination challenge from his former Secretary of State, James Blaine. And personally, his wife of nearly 40 years is deathly ill with tuberculosis. We talked with Charlie Hyde about Harrison's difficult re-election bid in 1892 against, you guessed it, Grover Cleveland. We'll talk about the death of Caroline Harrison and how he may have been the least disappointed incumbent to ever lose a presidential election. So I think Harrison was actively considering whether he wanted to pursue the nomination for 1892. And there was some rearguard action um, within his party um, of some other um, prospective candidates. Um, and so Harrison saw the danger of getting outflanked. I think in a moment of frustration said, um, no Harrison has ever retreated from the face of battle and I don't intend to start. And so he went ahead and pursued the nomination, um, but with his wife Caroline's um, um, struggle with um, tuberculosis um, and her declining health, um, he was put in a position where he wasn't able to campaign for himself uh, for reelection. And for somebody who was known for his oratory and um, his profound ability to articulate very complex subjects and very, um, digestible ways, I think that it, it seriously hurt him and his uh, chances for re-election and that he was not campaigning for himself. So Cleveland, being gracious, um, also then said that he wouldn't campaign either. And so, um, I, I don't know, I, I suppose um, the American electorate today might find that some somewhat relieving not to have um, that major flurry of presidential campaigning that takes place every four years. But I think it made for um, a less usual um, campaign cycle um, in that presidential election. So when Harrison got the news that he had not been reelected, um, and of course his wife Caroline had um, died just several weeks before, um, and so he had returned from Indianapolis and um, her burial, reflecting upon losing the presidency, he said that he felt like he had, was a man released from prison that he didn't know that he would have been able to carry forward with the burdens of office had he been reelected, um, considering all that he'd been through with her death. Um, so I think it was a very challenging moment for him personally, 
and the, the professional side of it was it was almost secondary to it. Harrison does lose his re-election bid in 1892. 277 to 145 in the Electoral College. Cleveland wins by 400,000 votes. He wins by 100,000 in 1888. He flips four big northern states, Wisconsin, Illinois, New York, the huge state, and even very sadly for Harrison, Harrison loses his home state of Indiana. That had to hurt. He returns to Indianapolis, and in just a few months, the country is buried by the Panic of 1893. It would ruin Cleveland's second term. We don't have time to go into the depth of the effects of Harrison's Silver Purchase Act and the McKinley Tariff and other things on the economy. But in 1893, they sparked a Great Depression that we discussed in much more detail in our William McKinley episode, our season premiere this year uh, in part one. And also, as we stare down the barrel of a depression here in 2020, you can go listen and learn more about the first and worst Great Depression of the 19th century uh, by going and listen to our season three episode, Ohio vs. Unemployment, definitely one of my favorite episodes. We asked Zach Taylor, how responsible was the Harrison administration for the Panic of 1893? Yeah, so the Panic of 1893 set off four years of one of the worst depressions in U.S. history from 1893 to 1897. In fact, before the 1930s, when people talked about the Great Depression, this is what they were talking about. It was devastating. Um, and it's interesting because Harrison, again, Harrison was a partisan. So as president, he pursued this hodgepodge of trade and monetary and spending and other policies to sort of appease and, you, and keep the Republican Party together and in power. But they didn't work. These different policies sort of contradicted one another. They drove up federal spending while cutting back on uh, federal uh, revenue. So it threw the United States into deficits that were just unsustainable. So that when the economy begins to descend into recession during late 1892, investors, especially foreign investors in the United States, begin to get worried that Harrison, who, who seemed to endorse silver, um, was not gonna be able to pay the federal debt that the federal government was not going to be able to pay its debt, at least not in gold, and they would start paying in silver or paper, and this would be let, they'd be losing money. They'd essentially be defaulting on some of that debt. So this turns into a panic, which hits soon after uh, Cleveland comes into office. So we tend to blame Cleveland, but I think when you look at it, uh, it's Harrison's policies that set us up for that. Now, he, Cleveland didn't help matters because he waited for months before he did anything, and that's another discussion. Yeah. But it's sort of interesting. We, Harrison had tons of experience in, in policy and government. He was well-educated. He understood economics. He was uh, a great leader. So he had all the things that we would check off as producing a great economy. But nevertheless, he set up this terrible panic and Great Depression because he was impulsive in his policymaking. He just tried to satisfy different interest groups and party pressures, so he reacted rather than acted. At least that's my argument. And I think we see this again with other presidents. When presidents just sort of react to problems and just try and please the party or various interest groups, you can wind up with this hodgepodge of contradictory policies that can result in economic disasters. And this is a great example. And like we said, after his presidency, Harrison returns to Indiana. He travels a lot. He's an active former president, but his post-presidential years are, are most known for his second marriage. 
Three years after leaving office, he marries his dead wife's niece. Sounds pretty bad when you say it like that. But Mary Dimico, widow herself, uh, spent plenty of time in the White House. She's 37 years old at the time of the, of the marriage, assisting the First Lady, assisting the President. His kids and his beloved grandchildren, like the, the national celebrity, his grandson, Baby McKee, were not in attendance. We talked one last time with the incomparable Harrison enthusiast Alexandra Petri from the Washington Post. And again, seriously, go follow her on Twitter, Petri Dishes. We talk about the marriage of Benjamin Harrison and Mary Lord Dimmick. So Mary Dimmick was his wife's niece. She was widowed and she was 25 years Benjamin Harrison's junior. And she had been living with the family for a little while. And one of the articles right when the wedding came out in the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette, it essentially claims that it's dispelling bad rumors, but in the course of dispelling exactly certain specific rumors gives you kind of a picture of what might've been going on. And this article claimed that having Mrs. Dimmick in the house in, uh, the White House was like too much for Caroline Harrison. And she said she has to go, but then she fell ill. And so Mary stayed to tend to her. And so she never quite got sent away. And then afterwards, Mary reintroduced herself and they got married. And he sent this sort of note to her saying, well, you know, I did everything I could to reconcile myself with the kids, except for giving you up, which is the one thing I was not prepared to do. Uh, she was supposed to be brunette, and had a great personality, and she helped with hostessing duties, and she used to go on walks with President Harrison right. during his time in the White House. That we know for sure. They say there's no second acts in American lives, but they were <laughs> wrong. Uh, Benjamin Harrison had one. But yeah, so it's, it's a pity because he really was very attached to Baby McKee. He was attached to his family, and that really seemed to bring about uh, Fisher, the fact that they weren't at the wedding and didn't seem to approve an unfortunate situation all around. Harrison and, and Dimmick would have a, a child, but Harrison would die eight years after he left office in 1901. As we close today on Harrison's presidency, it's kind of a mixed bag. C-SPAN in 2017 ranked Benjamin Harrison as the 30th president. Just in front of Rutherford B. Hayes, we talk with Charlie Hyde from the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site Museum in Indianapolis about the importance of examining these 44 individuals. They've reached the highest office in the land. While we know, you know he's better known as Indiana's only president, Indiana does also claim, remarkably, really, six vice presidents, uh, the second most in New York, including our our current VP, Mike Pence. But Harrison's claimed by Ohio and Indiana. But as Charlie points out, more than anything, Benjamin Harrison was a Midwesterner. You look at, out over the arc of American history, and there have been um, half a billion American citizens. Um, almost 12,500 of them have served in Congress. I think 114 have served on the Supreme Court, but only 44 have been president of the United States. So there's something exceptional about those 44 individuals, good, bad, or otherwise, um, but it's certainly worth thinking about and trying to understand why their fellow citizens elevated them to the highest office in the land. You know, what quality did they, em they embody that was um, seen as vital to that moment in time? to have a president of the United States who saw himself as a Hoosier. I know Ohio loves him too, but um, you know, ultimately um, you know, settled in Indianapolis and uh, built his life here. Um, and in some ways, I think his understatedness appeals all the more here in Indiana and the Midwest, because again, you, you, you can see these, um, these brash presidents that, and not to mention anyone in particular, 
Um, but over American history, you've, you've got some very brash personalities that demanded, commanded attention. And Harrison just wasn't wired that way. Um, that he, he really sought to pursue his agenda quietly and purposefully and had the, the resolve to, to see it through. And while he wasn't able to get all of the legislation through that he wanted to, I think he still was able to lay the groundwork uh, for the modern era in some really important ways. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound, from the big cities to the river towns, first in flight making history, there's so many books you need to see, I like reading, and I like reading, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, from the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue, Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation is our guest Alexandra Petri's new book from the summer Nothing is Wrong and Here is Why A series of satirical essays about the Trump years There's some really funny chapters Like the one about how Paul Manafort uh, had nearly $1 million in rugs and, and a satire about how that could have happened. Uh, it's funny stuff. You can download it off of Audible as well, and there's a link to the book in the show notes. Thanks so much, Alexander, for joining us. Also, a special uh, thanks to our repeat guest, Zach T- uh, Taylor. He's been on the show three times this season. Thanks a lot, man. Great job. And Bruce Carlson, who's on, I don't know, his fifth, sixth episode, uh, and he'll be on our next episode about presidential debates. Thanks as always to him, and go listen to his new podcast about Harrison and the Cholera Scare of 1892 uh, on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Just came out a couple weeks ago. Good stuff. Lastly, we couldn't have done this episode without the help of Charles Hyde, President and CEO of the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site in Indianapolis. Uh, I serve on the Board of Trustees for the State Historical Society here, the Ohio History Connection, and we manage, you know, 50-some sites around the state as well as our own museum in Columbus the Ohio History Center. So I'm always interested in what other history museums are doing. And what Charlie and his team are doing is pretty remarkable. Uh, So much that I really had to highlight at least one of the things they're doing. I could have talked about a lot of them, and we did talk about a lot of them. But first off, I was on vacation with the in-laws this summer. Um, They have friends from India who always go on vacation with them. They mentioned how prominent in the community the Harrison Presidential Site was. They've converted the, the house and museum into a polling place on election days. Very cool. Uh, they have what's called the Future Presidents of America program for school-age kids. Uh, that is a minority-majority program that helps develop civic leaders of the future. And more importantly, as Charlie talked about, create those connections in the business and governmental world that can be so beneficial in building a career. Connections that many of these kids wouldn't normally have. Very cool program. Uh, and we talked in, on this show, we'll, we'll just talk a little bit about another thing they're doing is... They put their entire collection of presidential artifacts in 3D. You can go to their website, BHP, Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site.org, BHP Site.org, and check out their collection, all in 3D. Not just that, you can also print out their collection yourself in 3D. Those 3D printers um, can make that happen. It's a really cool idea, especially in these coronavirus times, to make your collection available across the globe at the touch of a button. The technology had reached such a point that it would allow us to 3D scan our collection 
and to make it available to the public through our website. And so we, we started, nobody else was doing this at the time that we could find to take our collection and to make it available, um, not just for viewing on our website. And you, Alex, you probably saw, you can spin the horn chair on the main page of our website. You can go into the collection pages and you can pull up artifacts. You can look at them in the round. You can see more conventional 2D photos as well. If you have access to a 3D printer, you can even download and 3D print from our collection. And it's just phenomenal what this new technology will allow people to do. And with all the talk of STEM and STEAM and project-based learning, it just seemed like the timing was right for us to pursue this. And again, to, to develop another model of success um, that we could share with our peers, both within the presidential site sphere and more broadly with museums. Um, that it just seemed like a great way to be able to share our collection um, well beyond um, Indiana. And thanks for bringing Benjamin Harrison to life for us. And thanks for being an innovator in the history world. And go see that museum if you're in Indianapolis or you know, bring it to your living room, bhpsite.org. And it's not just Harrison Presidential Artifacts, they have other presidential artifacts in the collection. Uh, we didn't do a Harrison-themed book for this episode. There are, I read a lot of books for this episode, obviously, but none of them that were that, in, that great. Um, but there's a link in the show notes for a recent documentary film that Charlie... Alexandra appear in. It's called President at the Crossroads, produced by Indiana Public Television. Really excellently done PBS documentary about Harrison's life and times. Give that a watch. Uh, again, uh, link in the show notes if you want to learn more about our 23rd president. Well, that's it, folks. The election is only six, seven weeks away. The debates are starting in Cleveland, Ohio at the end of this month, and we'll come out with our episode on the history of presidential debates uh, and the debates that have taken place here in Ohio. On our next episode, episode 11, uh, that will be out Sunday, September 27th, just two days before that debate. Only three more episodes left about Ohio and the presidency. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and for the love of God, get out there and vote. I just sent in my absentee application last week. Easy peasy. Don't care what side you're on. If you don't vote, you can't complain about the outcome or the next four years. So when Harrison ran in 1888, there was a 79%, almost 80% turnout to vote. In my lifetime, we've never exceeded 57%. That was uh, 08. Uh, so many people were excited about uh, voting for President Obama. There's been years in my life under 50%. So come on, America, get, get your stuff together, get out there and vote, and we will see you soon for episode 11, Ohio vs. Debates. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.